where are my readers at? How many of you guys like to read? You enjoy reading for fun? All right, those of you guys with your hands up are my people. The rest of you are dead to me, okay? I love to read. I've always been a reader. I read anything and everything that I possibly can, um, from novels to nonfiction to the dictionary. I personally think Wikipedia is the greatest thing that was ever invented because I can just jump for hours, just check this and jump to that article and learn as I do. I've been reading since I was a young age, which I know is true of most of us, but like really have enjoyed reading from a young age. In fact, when I was a kid, um, yeah, my parents would actually send me to bed without being able to read. And that was the worst thing that they could do. I'm not kidding you. If my dad said, do you want a whooping or do you want to not read before you go to bed? I just dropped my trousers and let him go to town because I knew the worst thing that could happen was not being able to read before I went to bed. One of the worst moments in my childhood was when my parents told my teachers that fact about me. And they said, if you want him to behave in class, just tell him he's not going to be able to read during recess when he should be playing with other kids and developing social skills. And so, um, yeah, I've just always enjoyed reading. Now, here's my confession, that if I were born today, not in 1980 when I was actually born, if I were born today, I wouldn't be much of a reader. Because TV is too good today. You know what I'm saying? Like, we live in the golden age of television, and I would, if I were born today, I would be on Netflix constantly. I would be on YouTube watching other kids unwrap Kinder Eggs. If you don't know what that is, you don't have kids. And so, like, I I would just be glued to a screen like everybody else. But in the early 80s, when I grew up, TV was terrible. Do you remember that? It was awful. We didn't have the options that today's kids have. After this, you guys are going to be like, good story, Grandpa. I'm about to sound like the guy who says I walked uphill, you know, both ways in the snow to school. But seriously, we only had six channels, six channels when I was growing up. And they were either UHF or VHF channels. Do you remember that when that mattered? Yes. Yeah, there were only two types of channels, only six channels total. And on top of all of that, you actually had to be home when that program was on if you wanted to watch it, right? You would plan your entire schedule. Like young people today, they really have no concept of this. You would plan your entire schedule around what was on TV that night, you know? I can't go out with you tonight. The Facts of Life is on. You know, I got to stay home and watch it. It's craziness, Kids today have all these options. We didn't have that. If I had the same number of options, then I probably would have just stayed at home and and watched TV like the rest. Um, You know, when I was a kid, we didn't have HD. There was no HD TV. It was SD. And by SD, I don't mean standard definition. I mean static definition, you know? Like, it was like watching a mess, an absolute train wreck. But because that was the only time that that was going to be on TV, you watched it whether you could make out the picture very well or not. You adjusted the rabbit ears. We had the old console TVs that had the chunk, chunk, chunk turners. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? All right, I'm not that old. And so it was like chunk, chunk, chunk. And you had a little dial where you could fine tune all the noise on the TV. It was absolutely nuts. And there were no remote controls. 
right? There was no remote control to my TV when I was a kid. I was the remote control. And so I never wanted to sit at home in the living room and watch TV because anytime my dad wanted to change the channel, I'd have to get up and go change it for him. He wasn't going to do it. He asked me to do it. And so I'd turn it. No, turn it back. And I turned it back. Oh, this is boring. Turn it ahead. And so it's constantly back and forth, back and forth. So if I were born today, I would not be much of a reader, okay? TV is just too good in the world that we live in today. But because TV was awful, I think I really lost myself in books when I as a kid. Now, truly, okay, whether you are a reader or a watcher, whether you prefer to read the novel or to see the movie or both and then debate about which is better, there is nothing like getting lost in a good story, is there? Like, it's so great. Again, whether you're binge watching Netflix or you just can't put down the book, you know, before you're supposed to go to bed because you want to get another chapter in, there is nothing like getting, away, getting carried away in a great story, in a wonderful setting with well-developed characters and great plot. Like, it is just a wonderful, wonderful thing to get caught up and carried away in a story. Now, I want to tell you guys something that you might not believe. Something that some of you will say, no, that's crazy. There's no way. That's not true. But I'm telling you from personal firsthand experience, it is. The Bible is actually one of those stories. It's one of those stories that you can get captivated in, that you can get swept away in. Like, no lie, you guys, it is every bit as good as The Walking Dead. Like, there is some really crazy stuff in these pages, it's every bit as good as any audiobook or podcast you listen to. And I know some of you are like, Dan, I've cracked open the Bible, bruh. When you get to the book of Numbers, it ain't like that, okay? I understand that. Here's the problem. Most people approach the Bible the wrong way. They approach the Bible as if it were an instruction manual or as if it were an FAQ, you know what an FAQ is on a website where they explain all the questions that you have, they answer all your questions. Most people approach the Bible as if it's an instruction manual or an encyclopedia or an FAQ where you say, all right, I've got a question, now I wanna go find the answer. And you flip through and you find that it doesn't always answer the question the way that you wanted to, at least not in the place that you were reading. And so you get frustrated and you toss it aside. You say, I can't make any sense out of this whatsoever. The Bible actually isn't all that great of a story. But I'm telling you guys, it is incredible. It is full of drama. If the Bible were made into a TV show, it would be like TVMA, you know, for mature audiences only. I'm 100% serious. If it were a movie, it would be rated R, 18 plus. Like there is so much amazing narrative and story and character in here. And most people miss out on it because they're looking at the Bible all wrong. So over the next few weeks in the month of February, we wanna help you recapture some of the story in the Bible. We wanna not just go to the scripture and look for answers to our cherry-picked questions, but we wanna read the Bible in its context. And we wanna let the story, the epic sweep of the things that happen, we wanna let that kind of capture us and carry us away so that we can understand the scripture a little bit better and hopefully grow closer to the people that God wants us to be. So this morning, we're gonna start right in the beginning, right? That, that seems like the best place to start in the beginning with Adam and Eve. Now, 
I recognize that when I say we're going to go to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we're going to talk about Adam and Eve, that there are a wide range of views in this auditorium about who and what Adam and Eve are, right? There are some of you guys who take it completely literally, and you say, nope, the scripture says it, and so it happened in exactly that way. There are some of you who say, no, I think it's more allegorical. We're supposed to learn a message from this story of Adam and Eve. Whether they existed or not, I really don't know. And some of you will say, it's total myth, dude. Like, we know it's a myth. Scientists have proven there's no genetic way that the human population that exists today could could ever have existed from just two people. There had to be at least three dozen. I know, I've read all the arguments too, okay? My point is, whether you take it literally allegorically or metaphorically, we can still take it seriously. I have my view on it. I'd love to sit down over coffee and talk to you about it. I really would. Wherever you fall on that spectrum, I would love to chat with you. If you have questions or you want to share your opinions, I would love to share with you what I think about this passage. I'd love to share with you how seriously Jesus took Adam and Eve when he talked about them during his life. But if you're here this morning and you're like, I don't even believe this is like literally true, you can still track with me. You can you can still take this passage quite seriously. So here's what we're going to do. In order to tell the story of Adam and Eve, rather than reading Genesis 1 all the way through Genesis 3 and 4, which would be a long section of scriptures, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of jog through it. So we're going to hit some highlights over these three chapters, and I'm going to give you a bit of running commentary along the way. All the verses will be on the screen, or if you have a copy of the Bible, you can flip there. It's like page two. So it's not hard to find this week, all right? We're going to start in Genesis chapter number one. Literally, it's page two in my Bible. Let's start in verse number 27, where the scripture summarizes things, summarizes the creation account. The Bible says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. For some of you, that's going to be a revelation in and of itself, because you've always thought the church taught that women were subservient to men, that they were less than men. And you go like literally page two, and the Bible says, no, 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 men and women are equal in God's eyes, right? We both bear the image of God. Then in verse 31, the scripture says that God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Now we're going to be coming back to that idea throughout the message this morning, that it was very good when God made it, that God saw everything that was happening, everything that he had created, and he pronounced it good. It's good. Yeah, that's good. It's good. And then eventually woman comes along and he says, now it's very good, all right? See, I'm blowing up stereotypes for you guys. He says, it's very good. God is the one in the beginning who dictates what is good. In the beginning, God is the one who has the right to say this is good or this is not quite yet what it should be. So God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Now jump over to Genesis 2. We're gonna start reading in verse number eight. The scripture says, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. So the garden of Eden, that's where we get that from. And there he put the man that he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye. And what's the next word? Good for food. So again, God is the one who's deciding here what qualifies as good. And the Bible says in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Jump on down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man 
and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Let's pause here for just a sec because I want to explain some of this to you. God plants this garden. He puts man and woman inside of this garden. He says, guys, it's a sandbox. Do what you want to do. Have fun. Rule over things. Steward or care for the creation that I have made. I've got one rule for you. Only one. If you can keep this one rule, everything will be good. He says, I don't want you to eat the fruit of this one particular tree. Now, you've heard your whole life that it was an apple. The Bible never tells us it was an apple. It could have been anything, um, any fruit that comes from a tree. So who really knows? It's okay if we call it an apple. Just know that the Bible doesn't specify that. So he says, you've got this one thing. Now, I really want you to notice here that God never tells Adam and Eve why he doesn't want them to eat of the fruit. Now you say, wait, wait, he says they're going to die. Now that's a consequence of them eating the fruit, but he never gives them the rationale for why. If you're a parent and you tell your kid, don't do this, and they say, why? And you say, because if not, you're gonna get punished. That's not really an explanation. And so God never gives a rationale, an explanation to Adam and Eve for why it was so important that they did not eat the fruit of this one tree. That's significant. That's something you need to pay attention to and recognize when you read this story. Because this is really about that. What I mean is God is not actually giving them a rule as if the tree were magic and, you know, the tree were the issue. The tree is not the issue here. God is inviting humanity through Adam and Eve into a trust relationship with himself. He's saying, guys, I created all of this, including you. And I've said, it's good, it's good, it's good. I've said, this is good for you. And I'm telling you, it's good for you not to break this rule, not to violate this trust. I want you to trust me, Dan. I want you to trust me, Adam. I want you to trust me, Eve. I want you to trust me, John. I want you to trust that when I give you a command, it is for your benefit, not so I can kill your fun. You have kids. You do this. You say to them, don't do this, don't do that. And it's not because you want to squash their fun. It's not because you want to ruin their life. It's because you know how much damage that can cause. And God does the same thing here. He looks at Adam and Eve and he says to them, guys, I just want you to trust me on this one thing. It's the silliest command you can imagine. Don't eat that fruit. But just trust me. If you'll follow this, it will end up much better for you. He invites Adam and Eve into a trust relationship with him. Now skip on down to verse 25. This is going to be another important verse this morning. The scripture says, The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. The man and his wife, they were physically naked in the Garden of Eden. They didn't have any clothes. They just walked around like it was the first nudist colony. They had nothing on, and they felt no shame. There was no need to hide or cover. They could know one another fully and completely and feel no guilt, 
no shame whatsoever in the garden. Now look at verse three, or chapter three rather, verse one. This passage is entitled, The Fall of Man. You know, if the Bible had a soundtrack, this is where the soundtrack would change. It would go into the minor chords, you know? It would start to sound very sad and gloomy and doomy. Verse number one, the Bible says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? If you're like me, the first time I read this passage, I had about a thousand questions just in those few words, right? Like, who exactly is the serpent here? And why is he talking? And what makes him so crafty? Does he have an Etsy shop? Like, I don't get what makes him so crafty. I don't get it, God. What's going on here? Now, look, the Bible gives those answers, but the Bible doesn't give us those answers right here. See, you can't approach the Bible expecting it to answer your questions on your terms. That's not why the Bible exists. It exists to tell a story. And the story of Adam and Eve is actually the story of you and I. It's not the story of the serpent. It's not the story of the accuser. It's not the the story of the devil or Satan. It is the story of how you and I were broken and separated from God. And then every page that follows in the Bible from that point on is about God proving how much he loves us and to what great lengths he would go in order to find us and redeem us. So if you have questions at verse number one, so do I. There are places that you could go to find them. You can go to the book of Isaiah. The Bible tells us a little bit more about this serpent. You can go to the book of Revelation. You can go to several of the gospels. There are places where the Bible will answer your question. But if you expect the Bible to just take some parentheses and spell everything out, you're gonna be disappointed when you read it because that's not what the Bible's trying to do here. He said to the woman in verse one, did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? All right, reading comprehension 101 here. Did God tell Adam and Eve, do not eat any fruit from any of the trees? No, he never said that. In fact, he said, guys, I want you to enjoy the fruit from every tree except this one, only one. And so the serpent comes along and he begins to whisper a lie into Eve and Adam's ear. And he says, wait, did God really say that? Like, come on, seriously, do you think this is that big of a deal? Do you think the world is going to end because you eat this fruit? Are you sure you understood what he meant? Now, in verse 2, Eve gets it right, for the most part. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, which is true. God had said, you can eat any of them except this one. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. So she gets it right. You must not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the middle. But then she adds something. Have you ever noticed this? She adds something. She says, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, That's not what God said. If you go back to the verse we just read a moment ago, he didn't say, don't touch that tree. He never said that. He said, don't eat the fruit from the tree. Now, look, I'm going to blame this on Adam. I personally think this is Adam looking at Eve, and he's like, look, just don't even touch it, okay? God doesn't even want us to touch it. Leave it alone. I think that's what's going on here. I think she's just repeating what Adam told her. You must not touch it, or you will surely die. Now, in verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And then I really want you to get this next phrase, knowing good and evil. You see, the lie of the serpent to humanity when it's in its infancy, the lie of the serpent in my ear and in your ear is not to doubt God's existence. You've probably heard pastors say that he was trying to get Eve to doubt God's word. And I don't even think that's primarily what's going on here. I think the lie of the serpent was to get Adam and Eve to doubt God's goodness. That he's fundamentally a loving father who cares for his children. That every command he gives is so that we have an unbroken fellowship, a trust relationship with him. So that we can be naked and know no shame or guilt. I don't mean physically naked, just so we're clear. Some of you guys are wiping your brow. You're like, oh, I didn't know what I walked into this morning. No, I mean spiritually. I mean emotionally known, naked, no shame or guilt behind that. That's what God is trying to establish through this trust relationship. And the lie that Adam and Eve were deceived by was that God does not have your best interest in mind. So when God says, look, I just think it's a really bad thing for you. It's a bad idea to sleep with a bunch of people outside of marriage. I just think it's bad for your soul. It does some damage in the long run. And you say, that's old fashioned. That's what people used to say hundreds and thousands of years ago. That's not the world we live in today. God, if you had Tinder, you would understand. You doubt God's command is good for you. He said, I know God says I shouldn't drink as much as I do, but honestly, like it's how I de-stress or it's how I hang out and have fun on the weekends. And I just don't think God really knows what's good for me. I think I understand better what's good for me. I know God says I shouldn't take this money that doesn't belong to me, but I really need it. And there's some good ways that I can use it. And I know God says this isn't good, but I think I know what's good for me. In the beginning, God defined what was good. And then Satan comes along and he says, wait a sec. Maybe you know what's good better than God knows what's good. Now look at the next verse. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, she saw it was good. She started to decide, no, 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 I'm going to say it's good for food. God says it's just good because it's a part of his creation, but I think it's good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and she ate it. Now, again, you think that's a big deal. She ate a piece of fruit. It's not that big of a deal. Understand this was about severing a trust relationship with God. That's what happened. Adam and Eve essentially said to God, we don't trust that you have our best intentions at heart. So we're going to do what we think is best to heck with the consequences. Now, if you're sitting here as a husband, you're looking over at your wife, you're saying, I told you, you were the cause of everything. From the very beginning, this was your fault. I want you to look at the next verse. Because the scripture says she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. He was standing right there. He's like, no, you do it. Go ahead. Let's see what happens. You go, you go. 
He was right there. He's just as guilty. Don't let anybody tell you this was Eve's fault. This wasn't Eve's fault. This was Adam and Eve's fault. This is our fault. We're the ones who continually believe that we can dictate what's good and what's bad in our lives. We're the ones who say, I'm going to set the rules. Forget it. I don't care what's good for you. I'm going to decide what's good for me. I don't care what God says is right and healthy and wholesome for me. I'm going to choose for myself. You and I, man and woman, young and old, we've been doing it since the beginning. And we continue to do it four, five, six, 10, 100,000 years, whatever your view on this is. We continue to do it all this time into the future. Adam was right there and he ate alongside of her. The scripture says, then the eyes of both of them were opened. And at this moment, they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. If you jump back to Genesis 1.25, 2.25, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now that they've severed the trust relationship, they understand for the first time what guilt and shame are. They recognize they're naked and they decide they need to cover themselves up. They sew together fig leaves and they try to hide themselves. Scripture says they... Uh, after they made coverings for themselves in verse eight, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Can I point out this was stupid? God, I know you're omniscient. You know everything. I know you're omnipresent. You are everywhere. But we're going to hide right over here in this stand of trees and hope you don't find us. It's like when you're playing hide-and-go-seek with a kid, you know, and you walk into a room, and it's very obvious they're hiding behind the curtain because you see their feet sticking out. And you're like, Christopher, are you in here? And you get a little voice that says, no. You know, that's what's going on here. They hid as if they could hide from God. Oh, but man, we're going to come back to that point because that's so key to understanding Adam and Eve's situation and your situation. They hid. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He already knew, right? He's giving Adam a chance to identify himself, to fess up. Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And then the man said, I did, God. And it was all my fault. And Eve had nothing to do with any of it. No, that's, that's why you need to read the Bible because you never know when I'm going to trick you. If you look in verse number 12, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? In verse 12, the man said, the woman you put here. It's your fault, God. It's not me. You put her here. Look at her. What did you expect? The woman that you put here, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman does the exact same thing. She blame shifts. She says, she says the serpent that you put here, by the way, the serpent deceived me. And so I ate. Wow. Now look. 
There's a lot here, and I don't have time to go into all of it. We've only hit the highlights. Let me encourage you, please, this week, grab your Bible, go back and read Genesis 1, 2, 3. I don't care if you take it literally. That's okay right now. I don't care if you understand all of it. That's okay. I want you to go and read it because there is a lot more depth than what we've pulled out here already. But guys, if I can get you to understand one thing from the story of Adam and Eve, it's this. When we break our trust relationship with God, when we buy into the lie that we know better than him what is good for our lives, we become hiders. We want to hide ourselves. But the one fact from literally chapter one of the Bible all the way through the end of Revelation is that while we hide, God seeks. That when Adam and Eve said, oh, we've got to go hide, God's going to be so mad at us. When they said, we're going to go hide in the trees, when they covered up their nakedness because they couldn't stand to be known anymore. When that was going on, God came after them. God chased them down. When they hid, God saw it. You see, you may not have ever thought about yourself in terms of being a hider, but let me tell you, It's true of me and it's true of you as well. Every person on the planet is fundamentally a hider. If we define hiding by feeling guilt and shame that we try to cover up, that we have done some things in our life that cause us regret, that cause us guilt, that cause us shame, we want to cover that up just like Adam and Eve did. We want to hide ourselves from being truly known. You don't want to know yourself. You genuinely don't. You look in the mirror, you're not happy with what you see, and so you hide, you spin, you cover up, you, you, you try to project an image because you're not comfortable or happy with who you are really on the inside. You say to me, Dan, you don't know me, bruh. You don't know me at all. How dare you tell me that I'm a hider? The fact that you're arguing with me right now proves that you're a hider just like I am. I don't really know myself. I can't. There's been a a break in my ability to be objective about who I am because I don't have that fundamental trust relationship with God that I should have, that Adam and Eve were always meant to have, and and indeed all of us were supposed to have. You don't really want to know yourself. You don't really want to be known by the people who are around you. You want to project who you are instead of letting them see the real you. It's entirely possible that your wife or your husband, your mom or your dad doesn't know the real you. That you have manipulated and managed, you have massaged, and you have put on such a good front that you could say if you were in a moment of honesty, nobody really knows me. I've been hiding this whole time. Hiding what was done to me, hiding what I did to them, hiding what I should have done but never did. You're fundamentally hiding, just as every human being who's ever lived has been hiding. You also hide from God, just like Adam and Eve did. You can't stand the thought of being naked and known in front of God, spiritually speaking. You can't stand the thought that all of your mistakes, all of your regrets, all of your brokenness is seen by someone. And then when you hear some rando preacher like me say, God does see it all, and he still loves you, you say, that can't possibly be true. 
because I see it all and I don't love me. And if I were to show my wife or my coworkers or anybody else who I really am, they wouldn't love me. So how can you say that God loves me? But when we hide every single time, God seeks, God chases us down. We see it here in the garden. They hid themselves and God came through and he said, where are you? I'm looking for you. When you hide every time, God is chasing and seeking. You may have spent your whole life running away from yourself, from being known in a relationship, from God himself. You may have spent your entire life trying to, be, uh, trying to keep from being known and yet this whole time God has been seeking you. You talk to anybody who's ever come to faith in their life and they will tell you, I don't think I found God. I think in some way that I can't fully explain, God found me. I think that's what happened. That's my testimony. There's a lady who goes to this church. I won't name her, but she was sharing her faith journey with us one time. And she said, I was just kind of desperate. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. And so one night I prayed, God, if you're real, will you find me? Now, she didn't know Genesis 1. She didn't hear me saying any of this stuff. She didn't even know us. But she understood intuitively something that so many people overlook or misunderstand, that none of us are looking for God. You didn't come here this morning because you were looking for God. You came here this morning because God has been chasing you down all these years. You just never knew it. God seeks when we hide. And oh man, if I couldn't prove that to you in the Garden of Eden, I can prove it to you in another garden. Because if you go forward in time, fast forward through history, you get to the book of Matthew, chapter number 26, you find there's another garden. This garden's not called Eden, this garden is called Gethsemane. And over these last thousands of years, God has been chasing down people. He's been trying to communicate his love for them. He's been trying to take away their guilt and their shame. He's been trying to help them be known. And it hasn't really worked. So God decides to come to earth as Jesus Christ to invade our world and to reveal himself to you and to I. And in this garden called Gethsemane, we can read the passage here. He comes with his disciples to a garden called Gethsemane and he says to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, Zebedee was their dad. He takes these three guys along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Jesus was sorrowful and troubled in this moment. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. In this moment, Jesus is facing another tree. You say, wait, what? Uh, he was on a cross, not a tree. Except in the Greek language, the word for tree and the word for cross are interchangeable. You'll see throughout the scriptures, especially in the book of Galatians, the Bible talks about Jesus being crucified on a tree, although it's a traditional cross like we normally think of. And man, I love the symbolism there. And I don't think it's coincidental 
that in the first garden, when Adam and Eve, when humanity in its infancy broke its trust relationship from God, when we took what should have been a tree of life and instead it became a tree of death for you and for me, that thousands of years in the future, God himself would invade our reality in another garden and he would climb up another tree, a cross for you and I. And that tree, which is meant to be an instrument of death, would become the power of life for every single one of us. That Jesus took my guilt, he took my shame on himself so that I can stand in front of God, I can be completely spiritually naked and still be known and still be loved. And so today God invites me and he invites you into a trust relationship with him, into a love relationship where he says, I already know you, so stop hiding. Instead, trust that I've been seeking you all these years and that I have good things in store for your life, not bad things. I'm not here to quash your fun. I'm not here to ruin your life. I am here to give you life abundantly, life overflowing, life better than you could ever imagine it. Stop falling for the lie that humanity has bought since the beginning and trust that God is your heavenly father and he has gone to great lengths to restore his relationship with you.